Merry Christmas, everyone. It is awesome to be here today on this day, all ages together, worshiping, celebrating uh, the real meaning of this day. And thank you for making it a priority. Uh, Christmas, uh, by the way, you know this, Christmas is the only Christian holy day that that does double duty as a secular holiday as well. It's also a major secular holiday. Everyone knows this, right? But there are two totally different celebrations going on. And they're observed by millions, millions and millions of people, and confusion and concerns come from both sides. In fact, as a believer, it can kind of feel like mixing oil and water. And it's very hard to stay balanced, and it's, it's very hard as believers in the midst of two radically different celebrations going on to stay focused on Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to do today. Uh, I want to ask you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And it's a sad but true fact that a lot of people do not know the truth about Christmas. It's been obscured to them. It's hidden from them, as Tim Keller would say. And today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that reveals the true meaning of Christmas. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and I'm going to read God's Word. I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26 and going all the way to verse 38. This is a very common, well-known passage of Scripture that is read every single Christmas. This is the Word of God. In the six months, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Lord, we just want to praise you for your word, and we thank you that it is totally true and without error, and it is perfect, and you have given it to us, and you have spoken this truth, and we praise you that Any of us who are believers, this is our life. Everything we just read, and it just wraps up everything about who we are in Christ because of what he has done, and we we praise you. And we pray, Lord, that you would have your way with us today, that it would be to us according to your word. 
We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So if you're brand new at Grace, I just want to give you a little background of where we've been the last few weeks uh, as we've come up to Christmas. Uh, the past few weeks, we've seen how God orchestrates his plan, how he, how he comforts his people, and then how last week, how he rescues his people, how he saves his people. And now today, we're going to see how God displays his power, how he displays his power in the Christmas story as well as in our lives. And so we're looking at the birth of Jesus being foretold, Luke 1, 26 to 38, and, and my hope is it would encourage believers in their faith and show unbelievers the way and truth of eternal life. Now we're talking about God displaying his power at Christmas, and I think it could be very easy to you know, think of power when we think of Christ's miracles, when we think of the resurrection, right? You, you think of God's power, of course, but when you contemplate a, a baby born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago, it might be easier to think of weakness rather than power. And I want you to see something today, and, and really this is the big point I want you to get today. Why God displays his power. God displays his power in the birth of Christ and in our lives so that we would see his greatness and surrender to serve him. That's really the big idea here, that we would see his greatness. This is what Mary is doing here. She is seeing God's greatness and then surrendering to serve him. Let's start in verse 26. We're going to go straight through this passage. And it's a very familiar one, but I think there'll be some things that we, that we bring out of it that, that you might not have thought about in that way before. Verse 26 tells us in the sixth month, this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, makes John the Baptist six months older than Christ. Uh, the angel Gabriel is sent from God. So he's sent from God on an errand to a city called Nazareth. And verse 27 tells us he's coming to see a virgin betrothed. And we don't use that word very often today, but betrothal, it was the first stage of Jewish marriage, uh, a year before the wedding night, usually, more legal than engagement. And this virgin was betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now you're thinking to yourself, so far so good, we know this, right? He's of the house of David. He's a distant relative of King David. And the virgin's name is Mary. So up to this point, we're like, yeah, this is good. We got this. We know this. We've heard this. We're good. And then he says in verse 28, greetings, which really means rejoice. It means be glad, like Mary, be glad. You got an angel of the Lord. You got Gabriel coming to see you. Uh, if an angel comes to see you, by the way, you're either going to die or get a really good message from God, okay? Now, uh, Mary's getting the latter, but uh, wouldn't you be afraid, right? And so the angel, though, says, greetings, rejoice, and be glad, favored one. Very key phrase here, highly favored one. Mary... It's called the favored one. Literally, that means full of, you can answer that for me, full of grace, full of grace. Now, a lot of people have gone way off the deep end on this one and, and thinking that Mary is the giver of grace. But if you look at this and you understand what God is saying in his word, you'll understand that that is absolutely not the case, that Mary is actually a recipient of grace, not the dispenser of grace. Highly favored one, literally full of grace, is also used, that term, that Greek word, is also used of all believers 
in Ephesians 1, verse 6, where it's translated accepted. You're accepted in the beloved. You're accepted in Christ. And so here, what it means is, hello, Mary, rejoice and be glad. You are a woman greatly blessed. This is what the angel is saying. You're a woman greatly blessed. Uh, she is the recipient, not the dispenser, of God's grace. The angel says, the Lord is with you. What a great assurance. But verse 29 tells us that Mary you know, is basically beside herself. She is perplexed. She is confused. It could even mean that she's you know, agitated internally because Gabriel, the angel, is talking to her. And so verse 30 is... is is, is, is great encouragement as well. Verse 30, don't be frightened. This is, what, this is what he says to Mary. Don't be frightened. I mean, she's getting some amazing news, but it's humanly terrifying and humanly scandalous news. So he says in verse 30, Mary, you have found, there's the, found, that word means received, favor, that's the word for grace, charis, grace, you have received grace from God. And this is the same thing that Gabriel said to Zechariah earlier on in this chapter, the father of John the Baptist. And then the angel says, behold. When you see the word behold in the Bible, what it means is listen up, literally listen closely. This is a big point. Behold, you will conceive in your womb. Now, she's going to get married to Joseph. And so if the angel just tells you that, you're thinking, well, thanks, we're going to get married and we're hoping to have kids. That is not the way the angel is saying this. The way the angel is saying this is, you're going to be pregnant right now. Immediately, you will be pregnant. So this is, you know, crazy stuff. This is crazy talk. This is like, what? And he says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. So you're not going to have a daughter. Daughters are awesome. I've got four. You're going to have a son. They're pretty good, too. I've got one. And you're going to call his name Jesus. God saves. Yahweh saves. You go back to the Old Testament and some of the prophecies about uh, the Messiah. Isaiah 7, verse 14 um, God has Isaiah go to Ahaz and say, you know, I'm going to give you a humanly impossible sign. I'm going to give you a sign that can't come about, humanly speaking. It, it's, it's, it's wild. It's, it's unbelievable. It's unimaginable. It's a pregnant virgin. Birthing Emmanuel. Birthing God with us. I'm going to drive somebody crazy? Tell them that. And the angel says, verse 32, he, this, this baby that you're going to have be born, that you're, going to, that you're going to bear without ever having normal marital relations with your husband, this baby that you're going to have miraculously is going to be great. We throw the word around, you know, the, the word great around a lot and we, we say, oh, that's great. This is great, wow, or wow, that's great. This word, it's, it's the Greek word mega. It's, it's the idea of big, uh, um, uh, all-powerful. And, and interestingly, this was also promised to John the Baptist in a lower-level sense. John the Baptist, 
you might remember it was called the prophet of the Most High God. Now what sets Jesus apart is that Gabriel says he will be great, mega, and called son of the Most High God. That, that trumps prophet. A son has his father's qualities. Sometimes you're happy, sometimes you're sad about that. But calling a person someone's son in those days meant equality. So Gabriel is saying, quite literally, Mary, your child will be God. Verse 33, Gabriel goes on. God's going to give him the throne of his father David. Now, all the prophecies, all the promises. Jesus is David's relative through Mary, and David's throne equals God's kingdom. And so he's going to have the kingdom. It will be his kingdom. And he will reign as a king. That's why we call him the king of kings. Capital K king of lowercase k kings. He will reign over the house of Jacob's house forever. Um, It's talking about the eternal rule of Christ over all. His kingdom will never end. And the thing you might not notice, and even doesn't get brought out in a lot of Christmas stories, is that Mary understands everything that is being said to her and everything that was going to take place. That the angel is talking about immediate conception, that she was going to be pregnant right then, right at that moment. And she's answering now, verse 34. Okay, how will this be since I am a virgin? And, and there's no doubt or disbelief in her question. This is a question of, of shock and awe in the presence of God. She's basically saying, I'm not married I'm in the middle of a long betrothal period with Joseph. I'm before marriage. So how is this going to be immediate? Because the betrothal period is not complete. And, and, and by the way, she's not rebuked like, like Zechariah was rebuked earlier on in this chapter in, in verse 20 for not believing God. She was believing God. She's just in awe. And so Gabriel begins to tell her how this is going to happen. Look at verse 35. Gabriel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now he's talking about a creative act of the Holy Spirit. And the Son will be called Holy, the Son of God. He will be called God. And then Gabriel says, and if that's not enough, I'm going to give you another sign. Another unbelievable sign, verse 36. And he says, behold again, listen closely. This is again earth-shattering news. Your relative Elizabeth, who was old by now, who had not been able to bear children, she was called barren. She has conceived a son in her old age. She who was childless is now six months pregnant. And so verse 37, the angel's telling her, Gabriel's telling her, do you understand? Nothing will be impossible with God. God can do anything. He's not limited like we are. This is earth-shattering stuff. This is immediately life-altering to Mary. This is eternity-altering for the rest of us. And her response? 
God-inspired. A God-inspired response. Verse 38. Look at what she says. Mary says, I am the servant, Greek word doulos, bond slave of the Lord. This is significant. This reveals Mary's mindset. Doulos means one who is subservient to and entirely at the disposal of his master. At that time, almost a third of the population were slaves, and another third had been slaves. Bond slave means permanent slave. In Roman law, bond slave was property, had no rights. I think you see where Mary is going here. And by the way, many godly Old Testament people were called bond slaves of God, servants of God. Abraham, Joshua, David, Isaiah, and even the Messiah, even the one that is being foretold, his birth here, the Messiah, God's servant, Isaiah 53. And servant of God, if you're called the servant of God, it has an idea of humble nobility. It was an honorable thing. And Mary shows that she is 100% surrendered to serving God. So she says, let it be to me according to your word. She is willingly bowing to God. She is willingly submitting to the will of God. She is saying, I love you, Lord. I'll do whatever you say. Your will be done. And then the angel leaves her. And the angel goes away. This record of Jesus' nativity or, or birth is, is beautiful. It's beautiful. Luke presents it in a very holy way. Speaks of a spiritual overshadowing by God himself producing the Holy One within Mary. Very beautiful picture. Now I want you to see something in this passage. I want you to see really what I have seen this week. I want you to see three mountaintops of truth. Peaks of, of theology, uh, of, the, of the goodness of God, uh, in, in which God displays his power. Three mountaintops of truth on which God displays his power. And I want to call your attention to the first mountaintop of truth in which God displays his power, and it is the virgin birth. The virgin birth. And its importance cannot be overstated. Luke and Matthew clearly say that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived. Matthew 1.23 says it. Right here in Luke where we read it, it says it. And, and the Holy Spirit brought it about supernaturally. That's what the Bible says. And it shows us Christ's deity, that he is God. It shows he is sinless. But many reject the virgin birth because it is miraculous. Because God does it and we can't explain it. We, you know, we can't explain it away by science. But this is how God chose to save people through his son, Jesus Christ. The virgin birth. God chose a way that no man would choose and many reject. In fact, one New York Times writer said this, Faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical. So if you believe in the virgin birth, according to this writer, you're mentally challenged. You're not very smart. 
Now, the virgin birth was one of the first biblical teachings rejected with the rise of biblical criticism and its subsequent rejection of the authority of God's word. Modern heretics like retired Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong say this, that the virgin birth is evidence of the early church's overclaiming of Christ's deity, and Spong called it the entrance myth and called the resurrection the exit myth. Like you come in on a myth, you go out on a myth. But truth is truth no matter what fools say. Truth is, a true Christian cannot deny the virgin birth. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, I'm a believer, but I don't believe in the virgin birth, then you're not a believer. It is essential to the gospel. You can't pick and choose. It's not a smorgasbord. You don't come to the Bible with like a smorgasbord and say, you know what? I like that. I don't really like that. I'll take one of those, one of those, one of those. Uh, leave that off, please. I'm allergic. Albert Moeller says uh, Christians must face the fact that a denial of the virgin birth is a denial of Jesus as the Christ. The virgin birth explains how Jesus is both God and man, how he is without sin, how the work of salvation is all of God's grace. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, the Bible teaches a lie. It is total truth, totally authoritative, by which God displays his power. The virgin birth is a mountaintop of truth. Let me take you to another one, another peak, a second one, another mountaintop of truth on which God displays his power. The incarnation. The incarnation. A a right view of the incarnation hinges on on the fact that Jesus was virgin born. You can't have incarnation without the virgin birth. The idea is this, the eternal son of the father, the second person of the Trinity, existed before his incarnation. The pre-existent son became incarnate in order to be born as the God-man entering human history. The incarnation refers to a time in human history. Something that really happened in real time. And do you realize that the Christian faith is grounded in in actual history, in what happened in actual history? The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. And without these pivotal events, there is no Christian faith. And we take these events by faith because we believe the word of God. It is not the word of man. It is the word of God that does its work in us who believe. And in the incarnation, God did what no man could do. The incarnation tells us that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man in one person. In other words, he is God incarnate. Now, the Heidelberg Confession of 1563 can help us at this point. Here's a question that it asks. What kind of mediator and deliverer do we have? Answer, one who is a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, one who is at the same time true God. Question, why must he be a true and righteous man? 
Answer, God's justice requires the same human nature which has sinned to pay for sin. And because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Question, why must he at the same time be true God? Answer, that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. The virgin birth and the incarnation are are foundational to Christmas and Christianity. They are linked and one does not exist without the other. And God is our authority and his word is authoritative and the testimony of scripture is clear that Jesus was supernaturally born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit and that Jesus is God. So first mountaintop, the virgin birth. Second mountaintop, the incarnation. I want to give you a third mountaintop of truth on which God displays his power. It is the absolute greatness of Christ. The absolute greatness of Christ. The angel says he shall be great, literally mega, bigger, better, stronger than all, preeminent, first priority. We see the greatness of Christ in Isaiah 9.6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We see the greatness of Christ in Colossians 1. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Turn your Bibles there, Colossians. Well, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible somewhere in a seat back in front of you there. I want you to see this. Colossians 1, I'll just read verses 15 through 20. I say this often, but I love the sound of the rustling of pages of the Bible and the swipe of the, the, the almost imperceptible swipe on the electronic device. <laughs> Colossians chapter 1. Look at it with me. He, this is the preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let me say something just briefly. I'm under no illusions that I might say something in such a way that might hit you at such a moment that you might just believe because of how I said it. But I am fully convinced that the word of God is powerful and that even in reading those words, you might have walked in here unbelieving and now you are believing. And I'm going to read two more passages of scripture and the same thing might happen to someone else. I'm just saying, God is powerful. I am not God is powerful. Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And we'll look at verses 1 through 5, and then we'll look at verses 14 through 17. I want you to see this. 
the greatness of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now slip on down to verse 14. And the word became flesh. Here's the incarnation. Here's the eternal son becoming the God-man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who's full of grace and truth? Jesus is full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And John was born before him because Jesus existed before him. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. These are believers. This is a believer speaking these words. Grace upon grace we have received. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Where did grace and truth come from? Through Jesus Christ. Now I want you to go to one more place. Hebrews chapter 1. We see the greatness of Christ in Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 through 3. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. There's the Old Testament. But in these last days, now here's the New Testament, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Do you see the common theme? Do you see the common fact? And He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. How are you keeping it all together today? You're not. God is. He upholds all things by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the greatness of Christ. This is the greatness of Christ that God wants us to see. God wants us to see his greatness so that we would surrender to serve him. This is the point. And I want you to think with me about Mary a bit and Joseph and, and your own life because we also see the greatness of Christ in the counterintuitive display of God's power in Christ. Just like he does with the virgin birth and the incarnation, it's counterintuitive to the way we think and, and, and the same way he works in Mary's life and, and often the way he works in our lives is, is very counterintuitive. It, it's like, you know, you screw on the lid this way, right? But it seems to be going the other way and it still works. What's going on? Only God can do that. Nothing's impossible with him. And I want you to see, I'm going to give you four ways that we see the counterintuitive display of God's power in Christ. The first is this, that he honors the shamed. That he honors the shamed. I'm not sure if you feel shamed today. I know people shame people a lot. and Sometimes you get shamed by other people because of just how you look or what you do. Maybe you've done something wrong, maybe you haven't. But other times you, you just feel ashamed because of your sin, because of the way you've acted. 
But, but God honors the shamed. And that's counterintuitive to the way we think. Uh, there was a shadow of shame and doubt hanging over Jesus' legitimacy and about his parents' story his whole life on earth and afterwards and still today. Many refused to believe, doubted Mary and Joseph's story. Now people doubt the word of God. Mary was in an extremely embarrassing and shameful situation. She was betrothed to Joseph and faced the stigma of unwed motherhood and Joseph knew the child was not his. In Matthew, Joseph's perspective on Mary's unexpected pregnancy was she was unfaithful and I'm going to divorce her. And, and in, in the betrothal period, you could actually divorce, say break it off, by, by just going along with what the law said to do to divorce her. But the angel comes to, to Joseph and says, here's the truth about her pregnancy. And he believes. Mary knew she would be accused of adultery. Punishable by stoning. John 8, the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus with a woman caught in adultery. And they say, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? If you don't think they were butter, uh, baiting him, then you're wrong. Because down in verse 41 of that same chapter, they say to Jesus, we were not born of sexual immorality, hinting and implying that he was. By the end of the second century, 100 plus years after Matthew and Luke's Gospels were written, a Jew named Celsus said that Jesus invented his virgin birth and he claimed that Mary was driven away by Joseph for having an illegitimate child and that became the established Jewish counterstory to the Gospels. It was to discredit them and discourage Jews from following Christ. And you know what Christmas tells us? The true meaning of Christmas tells us that despite appearances, God is in control of history, and one day he will put everything right, and he honors the shamed. 2 Corinthians 6, 8, Paul says that we were servants of God through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, and we were treated as imposters, yet we are true. You know what Christmas means? Christmas means that your race and your family tree and your wealth and your status do not ultimately matter. The manger at Christmas means that if you live like Jesus and you follow him, you may be shamed and intimidated and have your faith tested. And there won't be room for you in a lot of inns. John 12, 26, Jesus said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Serve Jesus. The second way that he uh, counterintuitively displays his power in Christ, he exalts the humble. He exalts the humble. God humbled himself to become man. He appeared humbly without fanfare. The marvel of Christ's birth is that God humbled himself to become a man and even more to die for us to be our savior. Philippians 2.8 says Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. But pride rejects the humble nature of Christ's birth. Fashion designer Gianni Versace was murdered in Miami back in 1997, a long time ago. But a reporter once asked him if he believed in God. And here was his answer. Yes, I believe in God. But I'm not the kind of religious person who goes to church, who believes in the fairy tale of Jesus born in the stable with the donkey. I'm not that stupid. 
Well, here's a man, like many men and many women, who are gifted by God, but too prideful to acknowledge him. Matthew 23, 12 says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Mary is a prime example of one touched by God's grace who humbly accepts God's word. And Mary's servanthood is not a cringing slavery of fear, but a surrender to God that should characterize all believers. The rescued in Christ are humble. If you have been rescued by Christ, you will be humble. Isaiah 66 verse 2 said, This is the one to whom I will look, God speaking, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. No pride, no humil- uh, just humility. Milton Vincent says this, God deliberately designed the gospel in such a way as to strip me of pride and leave me without any grounds of boasting in myself whatsoever. Actually, a wonderful mercy from God, for pride is at the root of all my sin. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. There's a third counterintuitive way that God displays his power in Christ. He strengthens the weak. He strengthens the weak. He honors the shame. He, he exalts the humble and he strengthens the weak. His power is perfected in weakness. Now this is Christmas. This is Christmas Day. What a happy time, right? But it can be a time of uneasiness and sadness rather than comfort and joy. We live in a world of of shame and pride and weakness and sin, and it is very easy to feel powerless and defeated. It's very easy, even though God changes hearts by grace, to feel like we must fend for ourselves. You may feel weaker and more unable to cope right now than at any other time all year. And you're looking so good today. Paul had issues he had what, was, what he called a thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12. And you know what Jesus said to him? Paul's like, please just take away this struggle. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, well, then for the sake of Christ, I'm going to be content in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities because when I am weak, then I am strong. That's counterintuitive. Believer, you have all the hope in the world. You can be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You have the certainty of God's word and his power. He created the world out of nothing. He put a baby in the womb of Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. And one last thing, one other way he counterintuitively displays his power in Christ. He forgives the depraved. He forgives the depraved. By the way, why did Mary find favor? Mary, you've found favor with God. You've received mercy from God. It was God's sovereign choice to give her mercy and grace. There was nothing to her credit. Only by grace, Mary was aware of her need. She says later on in the Magnificat, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. She knew she was a sinner in need of a Savior. There is no sinless Mary. She was depraved like us. I know that might be hard for you to wrap your mind around, but Mary was depraved like us. Bad enough to be sent to hell for her sins unless she had faith in in the Lord Jesus Christ. To get the true Christmas gift, you must admit you're a sinner. The gospel is not good advice. It is good news that you can be saved by God's grace. 
Tim Keller says it is those who admit their weakness and need for a savior who get salvation. If access to God is through the grace of Jesus, then anyone can receive eternal life instantly. That is why born-again Christianity will always give hope and spread it among the wretched of the earth. We're all wretched, but the depraved are forgiven. Remember Luke chapter 7, there's a woman in sin, and Jesus says her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Hebrews 10.22 says that believers have had their hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Zechariah said of of baby John the Baptist, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. That's why. The angel told Joseph before Christ's first appearance, he's going to save his people from their sins. And then we read in Hebrews 9, 28, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. That's believers. See, Christmas is not simply about a, about a birth, but about a coming. Christmas means that the king has come into the world. The Bible tells us, though, that Jesus comes as king twice. Not once, twice. My question for you today is, are you ready for his second coming? Not, are you ready for Christmas? People ask you all the time, right? Run up to Christmas. Are you ready? You know, is everything wrapped? Is everything bought? Blah, blah, blah. Why wrap it, right? Just give it. I'm going to waste all that paper, right? Anyway, um, I wrapped all, my, uh, all the gifts I gave everyone. I, I wrapped them all up, most of them. Uh, are you ready for the second return of the king? God is not content to be like an idea or a concept that you know from, from a distance. God went to infinite lengths so that you could know him personally, so that you could have fellowship with him. So unbeliever, if you, don't, be, don't be unbelieving anymore, be believing. Job 22 verse 21 says this, agree with God and be at peace. Good will come to you. I like that verse. Agree with God and be at peace. Good will come to you. Agree with God that you are a sinful, depraved person and you need a savior. And the only Savior that was born in Bethlehem and grew up to die for the sins of the world and was buried and was raised on the third day and is now exalted at the right hand of the Father and will return in God's perfect time with blessing for believers and judgment for unbelievers. So yield now and be at peace with him. If Jesus was really born in a manger, you have lost the right to be in control of your life. 2 Corinthians 5.15 Jesus died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So, summing this up, this beautiful, beautiful passage, this beautiful, beautiful day, God displays his power in the virgin birth. He displays his power in the incarnation and the greatness of Christ. And on these three mountaintops of truth, Christmas rests. And it puts, he puts the greatness of Christ on full display in counterintuitive ways. 
Here's how Alan Weisenberger put it. God's power is revealed in the transformation of that which is perceived as most negative into what is most positive. Totally counterintuitive from a human perspective. Only in God's redemptive work can the most shamed become the most honored, the most humble become the most exalted, the weakest the most strong, the most depraved the most forgiven. And the result is praise to God. Go with me quickly to Luke chapter 1, just in the same passage there, to verse 46. Mary says this, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, all ages, all times, until he comes again. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry. The rich he has sent away empty. He helped his servant in remembrance of his mercy. When Angela and I were first married, uh, we received a gift of a, a dog, a Dalmatian, a rescued dog. And he had been abused, and he was pretty wild. And so we took him to dog obedience training. His name was Pongo, Dalmatian. And, and Pongo and I, Angela looking on, Pongo and I got kicked out of dog obedience class on the first night. He lunged at the trainer. I think the trainer was, you know, provoking him. And I had to do the walk of shame back to the car. Everyone's looking at me like, you can't hold your dog the right way. And I'm just really, really glad that God isn't like the dog obedience trainer. You know, one strike and you're out. I've gotten over it, by the way. I'm, forgive, I'm a forgiver. But I'm glad that God isn't like that. I'm glad that he is merciful. I'm glad that he is patient. I'm glad that he is kind. I want you to remember every day what a loving, heavenly father you have and what a merciful, gracious savior you have. And what an awesome Holy Spirit you have living in you. If you're a believer, this is true about you. God displays his power in the birth of Christ and wants to display his power in your life so that you would see his greatness and that you would surrender to serve him all the days of your life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are good and great merciful and kind. Thank you, Lord, that you have shown mercy to those who sit in death's shadow. You who is mighty has done a great thing. You have taken on flesh. You've conquered death's sting, and you've lifted our shame, and your name is holy, and we praise you. We pray that you would use us, open our eyes to see your greatness, and then use us as we surrender to your purposes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.